Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now, we step back into the ring and back into time, into the great Smoky Mountains, where there ain't no hoss. Like the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Ron, are you back home in Tennessee? Yes, sir. I sure am, man. Kind of oh. glad to be back. Uh, had a little short trip uh, to Florida. Check on my mom. And, uh, and uh, I'm back again. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, pretty lovely here, man. Uh, really, really quite nice. A lot of trees blooming and flowers everywhere. And uh, Springtime in the Smokies. Sure. Hey, it had to feel good to have your feet near the sand at least for a few minutes. How's your brother Rob doing? Rob doing great, man. Spent quite a bit of time with him, man. We had a dinner together and uh, hung out with him in his house. And, you know, he's the same old Rob, you know, <laughs> dirty son of a gun that he is. <laughs> All right, so nobody got in, ended up in a headlock or anything like that? No, no, okay. no, man. We, we quit doing that. We're trying to quit doing that. I, yeah, I understand. Say. All right. Hey, I'm glad it's a good visit. I hope your mom's going to be doing better. All right. So listen, this Studcast title, Looking Inside the Wrestling Business, that's the title. It really got my attention immediately. Are you going to be, is this like, are you a professor? Or are you going to be teaching today, Ron? So exactly what are we going to be learning in this Studcast? <laughs> well, so we're going to be doing a, a lot of what our, our normal format is, uh, but in the second half of this episode today, I'm going to take listeners inside the wrestling business, man. Uh, I'm going to kind of explain how TV shows were shipped from from city to city and television station to television station, why that was important, and uh, how it affected booking and bookers, which uh, <laughs> they, they definitely had to know what was going on mm-hmm. as far as the tapes they were dealing with. And in fact, we're going to actually book the first ever Southeastern Gulf Coast show in Pensacola, Florida. On Sunday, April twenty third, nineteen seventy eight, on this studcast. Wow! So you know we're going to I'm going to kind of lay out there uh, in the second part of this show how bookers maybe uh, the how I at least uh, handle my booking for sure. <laughs> all right, so listen, I think that's going to be pretty educational and interesting for fans all over the world. You told me earlier we're going to be focused on Sunday, April twenty third of seventy eight through the following Saturday night. So for the first time ever. Southeastern Wrestling had two live events on a Sunday 
and 500 miles apart. As I remember from last week, Southeastern Knoxville's main event ended with a ring full of wrestlers. Southeastern Gulf Coast down in Dothan saw the crowning of its first tag champions. These studcasts are, are now li- literally so full of wrestling, the history is in every every episode. So, I mean, I don't know how you can keep up with it all. How do you do this? Jeez, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, every week, Dave, I'm just trying to recall as much as possible uh, from 44 years ago. Uh, and that's pretty hard to do, man. Uh, but when I think back about actually being there in that time frame, with the thousand mile round trips from territory to territory, booking one territory while working in two of them, uh, constantly dealing with talent coming and going. I guess the answer to your question is I have no idea I was able to keep up with it. <laughs> you know, but I do know, man, today's show is going to be another loaded one. And uh, Knoxville had a great transition card after that last wild main event. And Dothan was coming off the first 2000 fan crowd in southeastern gulf coast history mm-hmm. so we were cooking that's for sure all right speaking speaking of cooking your classic continental wrestling.com streaming channel is doing absolutely just that the new dirty white boy documentary is really cool i think it's really great i watched an amazing two-hour mongolian stomper special on there from his early days that i thought was just astounding the streaming channel is loaded already with some of the best things I've ever seen on a wrestling channel, period. Well, man, we're, we're just getting started there, Dave, uh, and I'm happy to say that. I mean, uh, we're in our infancy so far as the streaming channel is concerned, but uh, all the great new continental TV shows are going on there now, and soon five years of Southeastern TVs are going to start appearing there. Uh, we're just... Uh, we're really in the process of doing so much work toward it. And next week uh, is going to bring the, to uh, the streaming channel the second Superstars of the Past series. And this one fig- features Martin Farmer Burns. And uh, he was maybe the best wrestler in the world from the 19... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong century here, man. From the 1880s until <laughs> 1900, Okay. Farmer Burns was the man in his life probably one of the best stories in wrestling history. So, uh, you know, I've, I've already recorded this show, and it's going to be coming up next week. And it's it's basically 20 minutes of remarkable information, man, filled with highly researched and detailed audio. Uh, it's accompanied by fantastic photos of the characters, the wrestlers that are mentioned on a, in a lot of uh, uh, a lot of times and a lot of points mm-hmm. and the action that happens in it as well. So, and I've never been able to do anything this phenomenal before. Uh, I usually just uh, sit and do the uh, audio and that's it. But I've got this crew that's working with me now and the entire group is just so talented. And, uh, and then they are putting photos that match what I'm saying in audio uh, so that uh, it's all, all, it's all basically now, Mm-hmm. Uh, photos and audio together, uh, yeah. almost like a movie, each one of these. Yeah. And I'm extremely proud, man, of what's going on in the Classic Continental Wrestling.com streaming channel. That's cool. So I know we don't normally do this, but you told me a short story about the upcoming second Superstar of the Past episode with Farmer Burns, how he won 6,000 matches and lost only seven in his entire life. 
So I hope you don't mind, Ron, but I think fans would love to hear that short story about his unusual training techniques, which I thought was really pretty incredible. Well, you know, I'm really enjoying this, man, doing the research for these special superstars of the past. Uh, and if people got to bear in mind, these were all shoots in the 1800s. There was no wrestling was a shoot. And uh, you had to be tough to be a wrestler at all. And then when I was just a boy, my grandfather, Roy, told me stories about Farmer Burns. And uh, he was one of the pioneers of professional wrestling back in the late 1800s. He was the man. And the reason my grandfather knew this particular story that I'm about to tell, I'm going to tell this story that I told you, and uh, is because Farmer Burns trained Dutch Mantel. And uh, not the bushy, but bushy mm-hmm. mustache Dutch Mantel. Right. Is still around today. Yeah. I'm talking about the original Dutch Mantel, trained by Burns in the late 1800s. Wow. So uh, that Dutch is the shooter that I've talked about so often in the Studcast. And he's the wrestler that trained my grandfather. So in a very unique way, there's a direct connection between Farmer Burns and the Welch family. So Roy told me how Farmer Burns, early in his career, wrestled another great pioneer of wrestling, Evan Strangler Lewis. Uh, Lewis was the creator of the Strangler Hose that was used many many years later by the famous Ed Strangler Lewis in the early 1900s, man. Hmm. So uh, Evan Strangler Lewis and Farmer Burns were just a couple of the pioneers of the sport back in the late 1800s. Roy told me that Evan Lewis beat Burns with his stranglehold the first time they met. So Roy said Burns got so upset with his loss, and this is the story that Roy was told by Dutch Mantell, that Burns was so upset with his loss that he spent years building his neck muscles to the size of 20-inch thick, which is a big neck. Yeah, Yeah, you know, and he did that preparing for his next potential match with Ed with Evan Strangler Lewis, if he ever had wrestled him again. And uh, so, uh, and the 20 inch neck's a big neck. I worked on my neck a whole lot the first three years as a pro, trying to get to a 20 inch neck. And I got right at that 19 inch point, you know. Uh, uh, so I know that a 20 inch neck is a pretty big neck and it takes a lot of work to get there. So, with that much stronger neck, man, he decided to add another new te- training technique to it. Uh, while wrestling marks every day in the carnival. That's what he did. That's how he got a lot of those wins. Uh, he ended up uh, wrestling in carnivals, and he wrestled maybe sometimes 20 guys a day, you know. So to prove his neck strength, you know, he, he finally started using, he, he put a hangman's noose around his own throat, and he stood up on a platform that was six feet off the ground, and he jumped off the six-foot drop. Oh, my God. Basically, he hung himself on purpose just to prepare for a possible rematch. Oh, cow. <laughs> so, so his neck became so powerful that when he did this stunt in front of the public, which was just about daily, he was already working on the valley in the carnival where the wrestlers were, and uh, he would do this stunt in front of people that uh, he got to so strong and he felt so comfortable with hanging himself that he would whistle the popular song of its time, Yankee Doodle, while he was hanging there. <laughs> I still can't believe this. No matter how many times you've, you've told this, I still don't believe this. <laughs> well, with God. superstars of the past, number two, yeah. uh, the, the Farmer Burns, 
is, is soon going to be released, Dave. Uh, you know, and if you have a hard time believing it, man, uh, you can go there to ClassicContinentalWrestling.com and mm-hmm. find the superstars of the past series, and you can see actual photo of him hanging himself. Oh my God! From I... the 1800s. All right. Not only that, but there are so many photos in this great superstars of the past, the episode with Farmer Burns, all from the 1800s. So you get to see these crazy-looking dudes in outfits that you can't imagine uh, way, way back in the last century, man. Wow. Uh, um, now two centuries ago, just about. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I can't wait. All right, so, Stud, where do we ride today? What do, how do we get this thing started? Well, we're going to have another first for Southeastern in this one. Uh, there are going to be two Southeastern live events, like you mentioned earlier, 500 miles apart on the same day, on a Sunday. And we're going to discuss both territories in this one, both of those cards that we're talking about on that Sunday, both the TV shows up in the north, not Knoxville, down south in Alabama, and the results of the cards in both the territories, the attendances for both of them. We've got a whole lot to cover there. And then we're going to also discuss just how far-reaching Southeastern was in the southern United States at this point, which is 1978. Uh, You know, we're going to find out television stations, states that were on, all that type of information. And then we're going to have some fun, man, in the second half. We're going to teach how TVs were sent all over territories. And then we're going to book, actually book the first Pensacola card that ever ran based on everything that we learned when I – talk about uh, how these TVs were handled and uh, and how important it was for Booker. So hopefully we'll also have time. <laughs> I hope so, Dave, believe it or not, to answer the learning tree question we couldn't get to last week. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, something about the, you know, the recent Continental TV show on Southeastern Rewind, the YouTube channel and the streaming channel. They both carried it. Yeah. Uh, and it came from 1985 with Norvell Austin in his valet, a uh, big girl named Lady Maxine. Mm. All right, so it sounds like another pretty good ride to me. Where do we head to first? How do we start? Well, let's start in southeastern Knoxville, man, where business was on fire. Knoxville was about to have its last Sunday afternoon cart. This was on April 23rd, 1978, and then it was going to move to Friday nights, like we always did when it got springtime and right into the edge of summer, uh, when it got nice outside. So, and then then, uh, i got to remind you, and I think, uh, you know, you remember that there was a big wild main event last week and the week before, uh, and it kind of opened the door for a very different card on this particular Knoxville event. And on this last Sunday card in 1978, Ronnie Garvin, who was at this point a huge baby face, he was going to second my brother, Robert Fuller, who was a Southeastern champion in a title defense against a Mongolian stomper who was managed by gorgeous George Jr. That was pretty crazy right there for a main event because Garvin had not been a babyface but a couple of weeks. So uh, then in the Southeastern Tag Championship match on that card, new champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, were going to be defending without their manager, Ron Wright. They were the new champions. Wright was barred from not only ringside but from the building itself for this one because he kept interfering and kept costing – some the guys that were wrestling his team, victory. Uh, Ricky Gibson and Jimmy Golden, they were the guys who were getting the shot at him again. They had just lost the belt to him about 10 days earlier, and uh, they were going to get this shot without Ron Wright interfering for darn sure. And uh, it was a special event on this card 
Ronnie Garvin was going up against Don Carson, of all mm. people. <laughs> and in another special event, Tony Charles was getting his second match with the great Malenko, uh, who had been at this point wreaking havoc in Southeastern, man. And Tony, in that first encounter, had got a real bad cut, which was about two weeks earlier. So uh, Tony Charles is going at it again with the great Malenko. Dick Steinborn opened that card with a really, at this point, a popular star, uh, Rip Smith. All right, so that was a pretty great change in the card stud. Where where were you? I notice you're not on this one. Well, I'm on the first ever Southeastern Gulf Coast card. That same night, 500 miles south in Pensacola, Florida. Okay, so, so, you, can't, so you can't be two places at one time? What's the Oh, yeah, man. I, I could have probably flown from the afternoon show. Okay. Uh, maybe out uh, because Pensacola's in central time and yeah. Knoxville's in eastern time. I might have potentially been able to work them both. Yeah. But I was, that, I was killing myself at that point, man, uh, yeah. traveling up and down. Yeah, no doubt. Okay, so understandable. So what was on the Knoxville TV? We're talking Saturday, April 22nd of 78, to, to set to promote the card. Well, it opened up with less, as always, running down the card for the show. And then he made an announcement that the personality profile of this show, today's show, he said, is a very special one. It's going to be with the NWA world champion Harley Race. And it's also going to be including the Southeastern Commissioner Don Curtis. So then as the cameras kind of backed away, Les was sitting there with a pair of wrestlers that had never been seen together on Southeastern at that point. Robert Fuller sitting there with his Southeastern belt and sitting next to him was going to be his second uh, the following day, Ronnie Garvin. So behind them on the huge set was a still shot of uh, half, about half of the main stars in the territory, all in the ring at the same time, looked like a battle war from the event that took place the Sunday before, where everybody just came to the ring and got involved in my match with the storm. So Les asked him basically to explain what could possibly be going on in this shot. So they both talked about the original match that was scheduled, where all this got started, where my mask was up against Gorgeous George Jr.'s hair, me against the stomper, and how things just got totally out of hand. And uh, so Les started to name the wrestlers in the ring. The photo's still up there, and he says, well, I see the Tennessee stud. I see the Mongolian stomper. There's Gorgeous George Jr. There's Don Carson. There's the great Malenko. Uh, Robert, you're here. Uh, Ronnie Garvin, you're in here. I mean, it was like the, the list just went on and on. So uh, so Garvin still taped up because he had had the, another bloody match six days earlier against Malenko. He still had tape on his head. This is two weeks in a row. And he explained why he was there. He said because he saw Malenko after their match. He had wrestled Malenko. And after their match, he saw Malenko go to the ring. And he was watching the match, so he went to the ring. And then Robert explained he was there because he saw Carson go to the ring first to get involved, and he went. So it really didn't matter. It seemed like everybody was mad at somebody back in those days. And what mattered most, I guess, was there was no winner in the mass versus hair match. The match obviously had to be stopped. It was just like it was crazy. The video showed exactly why when it was played. So they did play the video. And the three of them kind of broke down uh, who would be wrestling who the next day in the Coliseum after that wild match. So Ronnie talked about his Garvin versus Carson match the next day. 
and then he would be second in Robert in the Southeastern title match with mm -hmm. the Stomper. And then Garvin focused on gorgeous George Jr., saying somebody had to put an end to Gigi. And somebody had to, he said, basically, uh, somebody needs to hurt him bad. And that it, that it would be the first step in stopping matches like the one that they had just watched, if they could keep managers out of the ring. So Robert thanked Garvin for accepting his offer, to stand in his corner the next day. And that was probably no other wrestler other than his brother. You know, uh, I, I'm sure Rob felt there was nobody other than me that he'd rather have in his corner at that point. Garvin was really, really at the top of his game. And the studio crowd, man, they loved the idea, Garvin being in his corner, and they all cheered. And uh, when they left the set, Garvin went to the ring for the first match, and the studio loved it even more, man. And he got another strong win, as always, uh, jumped off in another person's throat, made the first interview from the set with Les. Hmm. Uh, Don Carson was in Studio B, his opponent for the next day. And... Uh, so then the second segment of the show was all about the Southeastern Tag Champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Akerson and their manager, Ron Wright. Jimmy Golden and Ricky Gibson uh, watched the video six days earlier where they were robbed of a chance to get their belts back by Ron Wright's interference again. Uh, Wright was just doing it in every match. Now that his boys had the belt, that was going to be the game. But they were thankful to get another title shot and they were extremely happy that Ron Wright had been barred. He was going to be barred from not just ringside, but from the Coliseum. So uh, they went straight to the ring, and they got themselves a big win. So Ron Wright and his team joined Les at the set for the second interview, and Wright went crazy about Don Curtis barring him from ringside in the Coliseum the next day. They said, especially since his men's belts were at stake, and he said it, it was like they, they had to give their belts away. Uh, without him being allowed to lead his team to victory, he said that they might as well just turn to give them the belts when before the match starts, right? You know, that he thought it was so important that he be there. And he was so mad at Don Curtis. Then the personality profile that I mentioned earlier and that Les mentioned earlier, it came along and this one was loaded. Uh, none of this personality profile was about the following day's card, but it was about the huge event 13 days later in the Coliseum when NWA champion Harley Race was coming to Southeastern to defend his title. On the first Friday night Coliseum show, 1978, on May 5th, 1978 to be exact. So Les sat by himself for this one. You know, it's out there on the profile. There's nobody there but him. And he told fans that there was something very strange going on about who was going to wrestle Harley Race for the upcoming NWA world title. That uh, He said he had received a video earlier in the week from NWA champion Harley Race that was very disturbing. And that he had immediately sent a copy of that video to Don Curtis. And, uh, and then he said uh, he was going to play the race, Harley Race video first for fans. And then when that video was done, he was going to follow that up with a video that Don Curtis made after seeing this video from Harley Race, and it was going to answer the Harley Race video. So he set it up, and then he played the champion's video. Uh, during that video, Harley Race bragged about coming back to Southeastern almost exactly one year 
after the 60-minute time limit draw with Ron Fuller that drew the largest sports crowd in the history of the Knoxville Coliseum. He said uh, that Fuller should probably be the challenger because he did take him to a one-hour draw again, and uh, and that he. But he said, uh, I heard that Ron Fuller was now wearing a mask and calling himself the Tennessee Stud. <laughs> so then you know, so Harley asked, knowing Thatcher is watching this, and I guess he didn't know who else, but he basically asked Thatcher in the video. He said, uh. You know, Les Thatcher, you, I'm sh- are you aware of a little-known fact about NWA rules? Hmm. And, uh, you know, Les, Les is staring this, and the video's running, so he race discontinues, and he says uh, that no mass wrestler could hold the NWA world title, even if they won it. Whoa. <laughs> so, Harley said that fact automatically disqualified Ron Fuller because he's wearing a mask. Oh. You no. Know? And he said, I really don't care who I wrestle if it ain't Fuller. You know? So Robert told me later, and I was not there. I was down in uh, in Dothan, Alabama, doing the television the same afternoon. Uh, Robert told me later that the studio buzzed, man, as soon as he gave him that news that, <laughs> you know, that Ron Fuller can't wrestle me, he's wearing a mask. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so Les then played the Don Curtis rebuttal video, and Curtis had watched what 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 uh, Harley Race had said. So Curtis said he was as shocked as everybody else in the video. He said it's a little known fact. Uh, I never heard of the no mask rule of the NWA. He said I never realized that hmm. the masked man could never be National Wrestling Alliance Heavyweight Champion. So that since he said that since the record setting match almost exactly a year ago with Ron Fuller, by virtue of his one hour time limit draw with the champion, he obviously deserved this title shot, you know. And then he said that Fuller had been set to meet Harley Race uh, two months after the last title time limit draw in Knoxville in June of 1977. He got hurt and Bob Armstrong got the title shot in his place. So he explained that at this point, it was an extremely dis- difficult decision to make to see who was going to get the shot at Harley Race, especially with so little time now to pick an opponent, mm-hmm. right? They're, mm-hmm. they're just a few days away from the match. Yeah. And uh, Harley doesn't know who he's wrestling, and uh, Don Curtis don't know who it either. And then he said that something, though, and then he kind of changed the subject in the video, and he said that something had happened last Sunday that he was now considering that might influence the outcome of his decision of who would meet Harley Race on Friday night, May the 5th, 1978. And then Curtis jumped into man a severe reprimand <laughs> of all the parties who were involved in that mask versus hair main event from the Sunday before this TV. And uh, that was uh, that gorgeous George Jr., that Don Carson, and the great Malenko were the first three that came from the dressing room and got involved in the match. Uh, where none of them had had any reason to be there, and uh, he said that it seemed many of the wrestlers were in no way regarding the rules that Southeastern wanted to to uh, to have when it came to the matches, and uh, maybe it was time to consider doing something about it. So he told Les that he would inform the NWA and Harley Race of who would be wrestling Harley by midweek and that he was coming to Knoxville for the next TV show. 
and he on that show would announce live his decision of who he was going to have face Harley Race on Friday, May the 5th, 1978. Wow. Okay. All right. So, I mean, wow. What a what a profile stud. That undoubtedly was going to help TV ratings big time and have everybody sitting on the edge of their seat for next Saturday. So how did the TV show finish up? But Tony Charles came in next. Uh, he got the studio going, man. They loved Tony Charles. Uh, he was in the third TV match. Uh, he got him a win, and then he made the next interview with Les at the set. The great Malenko answered his interview in Studio B, and he answered it. One of the things he did was he had that steel chain with him, and he, boy, he swept it again, cracked it again across the studio floor, got everybody's attention. So uh, that was his calling card, obviously, the chain. Uh, Robert won the Southeastern belt, and he wore it into the ring for the last match. He was, uh, And it, it had four baby faces on this card, which is really unusual. And uh, George, Gorgeous George and the Mongolian Stomper, at the end of this match, both came into the studio. Uh, and the studio men, people in the crowd, they got up on their feet. They were they were all upset. And they wanted to let Rob know that the, both of them were standing there watching. And about the time that they seemed like they were going to charge the ring, Ronnie Garvin came out and stood between Rob and them on the floor by the ring. Wow. And uh, fans really loved that part of it. So they're already, Ronnie Garvin's already taken care of him, and it's not gotten to the next afternoon. So in the last interview, Garvin showed up with Rob, and he threatened to, uh, to hurt Gorgeous George Jr. He'd already said he needed to, somebody needed to, and he threatened to make it happen the next day in the Coliseum. If Gorgeous George got involved in any way in the championship match, he was going to hurt him bad. Wow. Okay, so four babyface matches on TV. Another, really, another great one, Ron. So what happened the next day in the Coliseum? Well, Dick Steinborn and Rip Smith, they wrestled to another one of those great 20-minute time limit draws. Great, great wrestling match. Uh, no punches thrown. Uh, got to stand in ovation again. Wow, you know, I wish I'd have been there to see it. You know, and, uh, and the great Malenko, he beat Tony Charles. It's the second time he had beaten Tony Charles. Uh, Ronnie Garvin got the best of Don Carson. And the Southeastern Tag Champions, Dennis Condry and Phil Hickerson, even though Ron Wright was not there at ringside nor even in the Coliseum that I'm aware of, uh, they got the win over Jimmy Golden and Ricky Gibson. And then uh, the Mongolian Stomper regained his Southeastern title from Rob. Uh, last match in the afternoon, Gorgeous George Jr. did get involved, and he managed to get to Rob behind the referee's back. And, uh, and it was at a point where Garvin and the Stomper were face-to-face, -face, man. Uh, uh, this is going to be an upcoming feud, man. It's going to be uh, a tremendous one. Uh, then uh, once Gigi got the job done, he ran from the ring toward the dressing room. Uh, Stomper got the pin on Rob, but uh, Gigi made one mistake. He couldn't avoid Ronnie Garvin. <laughs> <laughs> and Garvin kept his promise, man, about hurting him. And he piled-drived Gigi on the concrete Whoa. between the ring and the dressing room. And the gorgeous one had to be carried to the dressing room. No. 
All right, so how was attendance that night? You had to do really well that day. Well, we did 5,250 was there that day. Uh, it was the 14th Coliseum show of the winter, uh, and all of those were above 5,000 fans. Pretty remarkable. Uh, very few cities in the country were doing those type of consistent crowds. All right, just uh, to tell you what, this is a good spot for a break. And while we're taking the break... Think about ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It is streaming everything. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Check it out. All right, this studcast will continue in a moment right here. There is so much old school content on the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel that we have not mentioned on the show so far. For true Southeastern wrestling fans, waiting for your first taste of the original Southeastern TV shows from 1980 to 1985, you can now find more than four hours of Southeastern matches and interviews on the ClassicContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. Subscribe now for only $4.99 a month or $39.99 per year. For a limited time only, get a one-week free trial. And while you're there, don't miss the great Gulf Coast library of matches, stud stories, and assorted stud cast. Thanks, everyone, for your support. From the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. All right, folks, welcome back once again. Another stud cast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. I'm David Summers. All right, Ron, it's a big one today. So where do we ride next? Well, we're heading, man, to southeastern Gulf Coast, and we're going to have some fun today, Dave. Uh, first, before we go there, though, I want to talk briefly about how far southeastern had spread its wings, man, uh, with the adding this second territory uh, through the reach of all its TV stations at this point in 1978. So then I'm going to explain the bicycling of tapes and actually book Pensacola, Florida's first show based on what we learned uh, from that little discussion. So uh, let's start with the TV station. Southeastern Knoxville uh, had TV stations in five cities, Knoxville, Johnson City, and Crossville, Tennessee, Hazard, Kentucky, and Bluefield, West Virginia. And these five TV stations went into five states, Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, and North Carolina. <laughs> then down south, Southeastern Gulf Coast, had TV stations in Dothan, Mobile, and Montgomery, Alabama. And these three stations went into four states, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, and Georgia. So there were eight total stations beaming signals into nine states in 1978. And in the next 10 years, we would add nine more TV stations and cover just about everything from south of the Ohio River to the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. Okay. So that's pretty amazing. By 1988, you were going to more than double the number of TV stations you were on in 1978. So, I mean, that's what I'd call building your business, Stud. So what city are we going to focus on in Southeastern Gulf Coast this week? Well, Pensacola, Florida is going to be our city of the week. And, uh, and it's going to become the home of Southeastern Gulf Coast. All the wrestlers are going to live there. Everybody's going to move there. That's where they're all going to live. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, April 23rd, 1978, which is a Sunday night. It's going to be the first ever Southeastern show. And it's on the same day as the Knoxville, Tennessee card. We just talked about 500 miles to the north. So Pensacola fans got their TV signal from WKRG in Mobile, Alabama, which is about 50 miles west of 
of uh, Pensacola. And the Mobile Station had come on board later than the TV stations in Dothan and Montgomery. And that meant that they hadn't run near as many TV shows as the other two stations had. Uh, so basically, it was really too early to be running matches off the Mobile TV. But we had a crew there. And, uh, and, and they hadn't made a whole bunch of money yet. Uh, they weren't working uh, very many nights a week. And it was critical to begin to, to start giving them at least five cities a week to work in and to get a payoff out of. So so we, we had to figure out how to start running more towns. So we're running Pensacola uh, before I thought it was it should be run, but uh, that was the situation. So bear in mind, this city got to see the same TV as was made each week in Dalton where shows were produced. Uh, but there was one significant difference. The Mobile TV area got to see the show one week later than the Dalton, Dalton market, which was 200 miles to the east. Mm, mm-hmm. So Dalton saw it one Saturday. Uh, so it was like moving the tapes that the shows were recorded on. Uh, that was what the, the wrestling business called bicycling your TV tapes. So mm. the TV show uh, and, uh, and the tape it was recorded on started out in Dothan every Saturday, the day it was produced. It was pre-recorded at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the studios out of WTVY and then aired back to the public at 5.30 in that same afternoon. Everybody in the Dothan area, all the way down to Panama City, over toward Tallahassee, uh, up, uh, uh, you know, it covered a great part of the part of that state. That was an extremely strong signal of WTVY. So two late, two days later, after this Saturday, let's say, on the following Monday, mm-hmm. that same TV show that was made on that Saturday in Dothan and shown in Dothan was sent to another TV station in a different area. And that's basically why we call it bicycling the tape. Mm -hmm. So Southeastern Gulf Coast only had three stations that aired the show. So the TV show first aired in Dothan. The Saturday was produced. The same tape and show aired in Mobile the next Saturday. Then the bicycle was finished in Montgomery where it aired the third Saturday after it was produced. So from Montgomery, it was bicycled back to Dothan. It was put on a shelf until it was taken down and used to record a new show on it, uh, which was uh, about every third week or so. And it began the cycle again. Wow. All right. So I've never heard how this was done before. So I want to see if I got this. The first Saturday, the show was produced and shown in Dothan. Then bicycled to Mobile on Monday for airing there the following Saturday then bicycle to Montgomery on Monday for airing there the following Saturday before bicycling it back to Dothan. Had a boy, Dave. Dang, <laughs> you got it, man. I can't believe it. You okay. know, yeah. Geez, so, yeah. so, so I got one. I got another one for you. So, what's the secret to bookers, man? And the, what's the secret that they have to understand uh, about how this bicycle works? Maybe maybe taking advantage of what was on the tape. <laughs> you got to almost start. You can start booking, man. <laughs> I'd have been ready to hire you, man. Let's, so, let's go. So, all right. So every TV show, basically every TV show that we talk about was designed to promote what was on a specific card that week in that market. So the angles, the interviews, the matches, 
all told a part of the TV story. The TV, the whole program tells the story, and uh, and it takes the angles, the, the interviews, the matches, and uh, that story is responsible for selling the card, and hopefully for creating a line at the box office. So, so Dave, let's let's do some booking, man. Since uh, since you've uh, got, to, got it going here, you know. Uh, so bookers, they need to be staying at least a month ahead of the actual event. So they book uh, somewhere from a one month out uh, to, I used to book as far as four months or five months out sometimes. Wow. I knew kind of what I was going to do yeah. five months later sometimes. Uh, but, uh, you know, you had to be at least a month out to be able to, to do business. So in order to put together the best card possible, let's say, for Pensacola's first live event, which was on Sunday night, April the 23rd, 1978, based on the TV that fans were going to be watching the Saturday before the card ran, we had to know what was on the card, what was on the TV that aired on Saturday, April 22nd, mm-hmm. the day before the event. So we had to have all this figured out at least two weeks prior to the matches. So, Dave, what's next? <laughs> All right. So, I may have gone as far as I can as far as being a booker today, but I'm looking forward to your thought process in how you develop this particular card. All right. So, so I, I'll take her from here. So, so the right. first Pensacola <laughs> event was based upon the TV production that was produced on April 15, 1978. That was the TV show that promoted the Gulf Coast Tag Tournament that we talked about in the last studcast, which that show was on Friday night, April 21st in Dothan. And uh, so the TV show was all to promote the championship tournament for the tags, the tag belts. So since that TV was pushing the Southeastern Gulf Coast tag tournament for the new belts, we can't obviously duplicate that card, the, the one that ran in Dothan. It's a one-time event, that one-night tournament, there's a champion. So so the Pensacola card had to be a completely different one than what the Dothan card was. So that TV had four matches on it. They were all tag matches. So we, we probably, uh, you know, uh, we definitely, have what, what I decided, man, was we're going to use some of those tag combinations that were wrestling against each other on that TV show, even though, it was not for wrestling for a championship uh, belt, mm-hmm. but uh, I wanted to put a couple of the tags and show some of those teams in, in Pensacola that first night. So the Assassins, uh, managed by the Gulf Coast veteran Rip Tyler, uh, was against uh, Charlie Cook and Big Bill Dromo uh, in Dothan. And that was a good one to take right from the start. Both teams had been on that show, and they even made an interview about wrestling against each other on that show. So... That's one of the matches that will go on that card. On the TV prior to the tag team tournament, there was a great angle. And I'm sure you remember this one with the wrestling pro, Tarzan Baxter, mm-hmm. uh, who was another Gulf Coast star against young Eddie Mansfield that just about got his mask off. <laughs> uh, that angle had uh, two weeks of videos on the show, and it was perfect, man, to put on this card uh, because it was a meaningful match, and, uh, and it had a lot of... Uh, support by showing video of what had happened between these two guys. So, and then another one, Bob Armstrong and Mike Stallings were partners in that same tournament. And uh, 
And then I wanted to pick up the two guys that live right there in Pensacola, Alpha and Sika, man, the Wild Samoans. So I want to put Bob Armstrong and Mike Stallings against Alpha and Sika, the Wild Samoans. They're both those teams are on TV. And uh, so taking advantage of that, uh, I decided to put Robert Gibson, which is a hometown Pensacola boy. Uh, and I put him with me, man. <laughs> I had about as much heat as any heel there. And uh, so it seemed like that's a pretty good match. And then we <laughs> opened up the card with David Schultz against Gulf Coast star Ricky Fields. And uh, that uh, filled out that card. Wow. Okay, so I'm impressed. That was a really good card to open Pensacola with, for real. Well, you know, it has seven former Gulf Coast stars on it. It had four great tag teams on it. Uh, it had one bona fide angle that had been pushed for two weeks uh, with videos on that show. And it had two nasty heels, me and David Schultz, to open the night. So I felt like it was pretty decent. Wow. All right, so how, what about attendance? The first time in Pensacola for Southeastern. Well, I I really didn't know what to expect. Bob or I were both very, very uh, hesitant to make a guess and worried because of what had happened in Montgomery. We ended up with 900 fans, hmm. and, and I was glad to see them, man. Uh, you know, and that old municipal auditorium sitting down there on the Pensacola Bay, uh, it looked pretty good in there. And uh, But what really made me happy was the response of the crowd. I could tell they were wrestling fans, man, in that city. And uh, and it just, it just it just it just it just seemed like they missed their sport. It had been a long time since they had a wrestling match there. So uh, wow. I was I was happy with it. All right. So but what about the other cities that week? Well, Dothan ran on Friday, April 28th. Uh, it was a double main event card. Mm-hmm. And for the Gulf Coast single belt, Bob was the champion. Uh, he was going to be wrestling against me. And for the new Gulf Coast tag belts, the champions, Ricky Gibson and Robert Gibson, were going to be defending against the Assassins, managed by Rip Tyler. Uh, same match that was the finish of the tournament. So these guys, Gibson brothers, are defending their belts against the Assassins, the guys that, uh, that they beat in the finals of the tournament. Charlie Cook was against David Schultz. That's going to become a big feud, one of the long-running programs will be the first of the long-running programs that we're going to do down there. Mike Stallings against Eddie Mansfield and the pro Tarzan Baxter versus Eddie Sullivan. Wow. So what about the TV? Saturday, I think April 22nd of 78, that was promoting this card. Well, this TV was pretty standard. You know, uh, it wins. It had wins for a couple of heels, but it had one really major angle on it. And the first, it's, this was going to be the first real angle that we'd worked on TV. And it began uh, kind of last week with the arrival of Billy Spears. And uh, for the fans that uh, listened to the last studycast, they know who Billy Spears was. And uh, Bob and I, we hadn't been happy with Rip Tyler's, uh, not ability, but inability to do great interviews. Uh, the young assassin team that we had put together, man, they turned out to be a great duo. They were like clockwork together. They were fantastic. And they deserved to have a comparable manager, somebody who could really talk. And Billy Spears was that guy. So Bob and I sat down with Rip Tyler, 
who was a really nice guy and in level with him what our problem was about his interviews and he knew his own shortcomings mm -hmm. and he admitted it and uh so we we told him we really couldn't keep him that we didn't we had to let him go and uh and he was nice about accepting his notice and he did he did say he would like to do uh the angle we had talked to him said we we want to do an angle uh, to replace you and he said he would do what we wanted what we had in mind hmm. and if we could just let him hang out for a couple of weeks until he found another territory to go to uh, and use him in maybe some six-man tags and a few events here and there yeah and uh so uh, and i was always pleased doing business with guys that didn't have a problem man when you gave them a notice mm -hmm. i was always inclined to remember how they handled notices man uh, so in the future, uh, I know who I was dealing with. So it said a lot about where where guys' minds were when they came down to when it came down to doing business. Rip Tyler, he was a veteran, and uh, he was a veteran not just in the ring but out of the ring, and he wow. was he was fine to do business with. So the first big angle we ever did down there began on the opening of this show. Charlie Platt watched the video of the final match of the tag tournament for the new belts and he sat there and watched it with the losing team with the assassins and reptile and it showed billy spears come down to the ring toward the end of the match when one of the assassins had ricky gibson in a full nelson and uh rip tyler uh brought attention to the fact that uh, there was uh, billy spears came down about the same time man and uh and uh, both the assassins were standing behind him uh, watching the video with him and they just kind of looked at each other like, uh, well, you know, uh, I guess he would notice that he came down. He grabbed his pants. Leg. So the referee at this point hmm. was on the other side of the ring with Robert Gibson and the other assassin. And Tyler was on the apron. He had taken something out of his pocket and he put it on his hand. And Billy Spears got down the ringside, grabbed him by his pants leg. And uh, it caused Tyler to lose his composure. And he kind of looked down. He shook Spears off of his leg. But... By the time he turned around, he was too late, really, to do what he was planning on doing mm -hmm. or needed to do. But he wasn't very smart, and he threw the punch at Ricky anyway, and Ricky was waiting on it. Uh -huh. And all he did was duck. Uh -huh. Tyler knocked out one of his men. The assassin went down. And uh, the two assassins standing behind Tyler at this point just shook their heads at each other <laughs> like, wow, look at that, you know. So Tyler realized about that point what he'd done, and he tried to get through the ropes to stop Ben, but he fell on his face. <laughs> he was a good front coordinator, and he got there too late to, to stop the loss of the belts. I mean, both of his assassins now are really shaking their heads behind him as he's talking. <laughs> so then Tyler wanted Charlie Platt to get out of the video at that point. They, you know, match was <laughs> over. The results were there. But the match continued, and it still showed the winners leaving, uh, you know. And it also showed the the assassin that was still standing bending over his partner, and then getting in the face of Tyler. He was really mad at Tyler. So uh, Charlie Platt, you know, he, he saw it like everybody at home, and he drew attention to it. But Tyler kind of made light of it, and as the video showed, you know, uh, the rest of it showed the unconscious assassin being carried from the ring. So the studio crowd, they were very pleased with the results of the video. <laughs> they loved the fact that the Gibsons won the belts and uh, they were cheering as the assassin was carried out, even watching it on video. 
So it was always great to see the fans get into those videos watching them on the monitor. <laughs> so the assassins were obviously not so pleased, though, that they started to leave the set without Rip Tyler. They just were going to walk on the dressing room. <laughs> so, and, and then he scrambled. He had to scramble to catch up with them. So, so, uh, so Ricky Gibson had, had come down again from Knoxville to work on Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday in the Southern Territory. And he and his brother, Robert, uh, they were in the first match of the TV. Boy, and they tore the studio up, man. They to wear those new belts out there. And uh, we even made that match at the championship match for the belts. So they defended their belts on TV the very first time. And uh, so Charlie Platt, he'd done the personality profile with Billy Spears, who was a spectator in the crowd the week before. Fans remember if they listen to the last uh, cast. And he asked Spears to join him again this week. So Spears was a great talker, and, and he tore into Rip Tyler again, just like he had done the week before, saying to Charlie again, as he did in the last show, how his rich mom had told him he could either, he could have any amount he wanted to to become a professional wrestling manager. Huh. And, uh, <laughs> so once again, he said he wanted, he wanted those two assassins. And then, you know, he mentioned something about the fumbling, bumbling Rip Tyler. He ain't capable of handling these guys. He's going to, he's a loser. Look, he cost them the victory. He had seen the tape early. Look, he, he actually cost them to lose. So again, Tyler was listening to this on the monitor in the dressing room. And same as he did last week, he bolted out, man, to get the spears. But this time the assassins, they didn't grab him. They kind of laid back. They just let him run over there across the studio to where Spears was. And uh, Billy Spears, he was kind of a short, dumpy little guy, right? <laughs> he, he had a white goatee mustache. Mm -hmm. And again, he was dressed in that same all-white suit that he had on TV the week before. <laughs> and when here came Tyler charging him, he jumped up out of his seat. And uh, so Charlie got up as well, you know? I mean, uh, his personality profile, you're not supposed to have anybody else in it. And, you know, he didn't want Tyler to get involved. And, so he stood up and he kind of stuck out his arm to try and hold Tyler back. Well, it, it worked for a second, long enough for Tyler to scream at Spears. He screamed at himself like, are you, are you trying to steal my team? You know, and uh, so Spears grinned at him. watching on. I was watching on the monitor and he said, I already have. <laughs> yeah. so Charlie Platt saw it coming back. So he asked Tyler, please, please go back to your dressing room. But it was too late, man. Tyler tore into Spears, man. He knocked him backwards over the chair he'd been sitting in. And he and he dived over the chair and went down on top of him. And he was flailing him, man. So and that's about the time the big boys dressed all in black took over. <laughs> and they, instead of grabbing up Spears, <laughs> they grabbed Tyler by the back of his sport coat. And they jerked him up in the air and slammed him on the concrete. <laughs> and the studio crowd, they went crazy. They didn't care who, who was going to manage that team. You know, they just enjoyed the fact that the, the, now the assassins were on Tyler. <laughs> and uh, so Spears, he got, he got, he reached over and they found himself as folding chair, a steel folding chair that was behind the set that had been pushed back for the profile. And the assassins grabbed Tyler, one on each arm, and they held him standing straight up and Billy Spears hit him in the head with that steel chair. And <laughs> it opened the gash, man. 
blood began to flow down Tyler's face. And Tyler fought back, though, man, and he grabbed Spears by the white coat that he was wearing, and he intentionally jammed his bloody face into the white coat, right? And, <laughs> and then he just fought like crazy, fought all three of them until one of the assassins hit him with a headbutt in the back of the head from Ooh. behind, Ooh. and uh, he went down, and they all three started to put the boots to him. Bob Armstrong and the Gibson brothers, they, they came out to his rescue. And Billy Spears, with a blood-covered suit, man, ran with the assassins for the safety of the Hills dressing room. Man. Uh, so the taping was stopped. Uh, Tyler was carried back uh, to the babyface dressing room, and the studio was set back up again, and the chairs were straightened out, and, uh, and then they started taping the rest of the show. Uh, the studio was absolutely electric at this point. They, I mean, they just, they would love what they had seen. And, and the rest of the show was not going to reach anywhere near the peak to that personality profile. Yeah, pro probably, probably not. Man, what a sight that had to be, Ron. So I'm afraid we're about out of time again. I want to get to that learning tree question because we don't want to go two weeks in a row by missing it. Is, I mean, is that good with you, Stud? Yeah, yeah, man. I, yeah, sure it is. You know, we, we covered a lot of ground today. Yeah. You know, and, uh, yeah. I'll try to finish this next week, fans out there. We'll try to come back and get pick up this next week and All get right. you uh, figure, tell you what happened in the rest of the show. All right. So, uh, so since we're going to do the learning tree, uh, what was that question again, Dave? All right. So the question came from Dave Hunter on YouTube. I think maybe his uh, number is 14 Dave Hunter, if, uh, if that's correct, on YouTube. Comments about continental TV shows. He says, why did it take so long to bring Lady Maxine in on the Norvell Austin and Adrian Street matches? <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, for people that have been watching those continental shows, uh, they'll know exactly what he's talking about. And for those that don't know, I guess I can explain it a little bit. It may catch up. The last few Continental TV shows, they're on YouTube, and now they're exclusively on the classic ContinentalWrestling.com streaming channel. But the last few Continental TV shows have featured basically a few between Adrian Street and Norvell Austin over the Southeastern Championship, and the belt was painted pink by Adrian Street. So uh, Adrian was proud of his pink Southeastern Championship belt. And and the feud had started out between the two of them, but then it got around to Miss Linda getting involved from Adrian's side, and then Norvell Austin getting a lady wrestler named Candy Devine to, uh, to come on his side, to ba basically be his valet. They even had a mixed match where Adrian and Miss Linda wrestled Norvell and Candy Devine. So uh, mm -hmm. it was a pretty, uh, well, actually, it's a very raucous feud, man, with Adrian Street. In fact, Adrian Street Padre, the lady wrestler, and Candy Devine on one of the TVs. Mm -hmm. So Austin then went out and he found himself a six foot four inch, very wiry wrestler named Lady Maxine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he, he's also gotten her, you know, involved. He was getting her slowly involved in what was going on, but it, it was a slow build. You know, it was a great little tease. It was leading up to what was going to happen. So uh, Dave Hunter, 14 Dave Hunter or Dave Hunter, uh, I think the name was, 
sometimes a slow build is a lot more effective than just getting right to an angle and then ending it just as fast. So you're asking why it took so long to get her involved. Uh, you know, a slow build is a great thing. And this extended program between these two guys and their ladies as well, uh, gosh, it was one of the best that we ever did with Continental. It was a tremendous program. And uh, so so what happened on the last Continental TV show recorded uh, the, in late 1985 or early 1986 is a perfect example of what I just said. Uh, and I remember watching the last show and Maxine had been seen a couple of times on the show, but she had not done anything yet. And Gordon opened up the show by giving people a quick rundown of who was going to be on that TV. And most of the names he mentioned, as he mentioned, it got a good response. But the wrestler with the best response of the entire introduction by Gordon of the show was the six-foot-four-inch Lady Maxine. <laughs> so I can understand, uh, yeah. uh, Mr. Hunter, you know, <laughs> that uh, you're feeling, uh, why, is, why aren't you doing more with Lady Maxine? Well, so... So in ending this and in getting to the point, I guess, uh, I have another way to describe this to you, Mr. Hunter. Uh, you know, the slow build of an angle uh, <laughs> is, is, uh, is basically a wonderful thing. Mm. Uh, and, and, and I like to, I guess there's a good way I used to put it is uh, sometimes the longer the fuse burns, the bigger the explosion. Oh, that's an awesome way of describing it. Let the fuse burn a little while. That's awesome. All right, listen, you were too much here, Ron. I think we've had an explanation or two right here on this studcast, and wow, that's awesome. All right, so listen, folks, on Facebook, to become friends with Ron, please go to the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page. Like him and follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, follow Ron at Ron Fuller Welch. The website, visit the stud on his tremendous website, tnstud.com. You'll find great videos, a photo gallery, every studcast ever done, 43 super studcaster there. Shop the stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, personally autographed photos, the classic Continental Video 5-Pack. His Tennessee Stud mask is available there, too. One of a kind. And his thrilling lion novel, Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube is where much of what the stud is famous for is displayed. The place you can find everything now that Ron has done is the amazing streaming channel, ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It's all there and always will be. New superstars of the past series with number two, Farmer Burns, appearing next week. Stars of the sports series with Andre the Giant, Mankind, Mick Foley, and now legendary Ron Wright. Documentaries of Wildcat Wendell Cooley and the new world premiere of Tony Anthony's Dirty White Boy. More than four hours of Southeastern matches are now there and coming soon. The original classic Southeastern TV shows and much more. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Only $4.99 per month or $39.99 per year. It's going to be the best old school streaming site on the planet. Don't miss this special offer right now. For a limited time, get a free one-week trial 
on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. If you don't like it, boom, it's over. It's been another most unusual studcast, Ron, I tell you. You've done a lot. I mean, you've done a little bit of everything in this one, which really amounted to a lot. So where do we ride to next week? Well, we're going to be focusing on the Southeastern Territories in the week of April 30th, May the 6th, 1978. We're going to be talking about a huge world title card in Knoxville. We'll talk about Harley Race's opponent uh, being announced. Uh, we'll talk about the entire card, the TV in which his opponent's going to be announced. Uh, it's going to promote the card. We'll talk about the results of that big world title card and the attendance. And then we're going to try to finish what happened on the Southeastern Gulf Coast show today. Uh, we're going to cover Panama City's first live event. In uh, the next one, we had Pensacola this, this time. That, Panama City is going to be the next. And uh, we're going to talk about two Fridays worth of Alabama shows. So uh, then uh, we're going to end up, uh, hopefully, with another learning tree. So I want to thank everybody for listening again today. Uh, and also, I want to say hello to the many new fans that are joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the ride, and I hope you saddle up again next week. Please take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.